Hello, and welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a CityWire podcast where we speak to some of the best investors in the world about the worst mistakes they've made, and crucially, what they learned from them. I'm Alex Steger, Editor-in-Chief of CityWire USA, and I'm joined today by... I'm Chris Slowly, the Editor of CityWire Selector, our pan-European publication. Fantastic. Great to have you here, Chris. Um, I, I'll be honest, I do feel a little bit as though I'm cheating on Frank, but... Um, oh, he'll get over I'll, it. He'll be fine. Got yeah, thick I, skin, Frank. I don't know if I'll get over it. The guilt. Can yeah. you live with it? It's, it's going to be tough. Um, but thanks for being here, Chris. And of course, uh, the reason you're here is that, 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 that you and I both interviewed our, our guest today, Simon Hallett, who is the vice chair and a founding partner at Harding Lovner. Um, Harding Lovner, for those who don't know them, are a international growth equity shop that managed north of about 80 billion US dollars. And Simon is also interesting, not just for his investment prowess, but because he is the chairman and majority owner of Plymouth Argyle Football Club, um, a club close, not so much close to your heart, Chris, but, but, but that you know quite a lot about. I do. Well, physically close to where I grew up. And in fact, a, a club I had two trials with as a, a child before playing for their rivals Exeter City for a bit. So for the American listeners, Plymouth Argyle are in the third tier. I might have got that wrong. I should have fact-checked of professional soccer in the UK. And um, yeah, Simon's doing some quite interesting stuff. And we get onto that into the discussion of how he manages to marry managing that endeavour with his very analytical approach to markets and asset allocation. Yeah, and also um, for the UK listeners, just apologies that we use the word soccer there to describe football. But this is... You know, I, I felt weird are, doing it. Yeah, these are these are the pains and pitfalls of trying to trying to produce a a transatlantic powerhouse of a podcast, which is you know, the, which is which is what we're doing here. In case you hadn't noticed, um, cool. So look, yeah, I thought you know it was really great to speak to Simon. He was very um, frank with us about a, an early mistake that they had made with regards to uh, sort of a big call they made about um, international stocks outperforming and an error they made in, in expressing that. I think he also. We spoke at a decent length about how incentives can help you make better decisions, but also how bad incentives can lead to lead to bad decisions effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And we like I, I made light of it there, but we also talked about how he did cross over what led him to invest in a football club when it's not seen some a very good or efficient, efficient way of making money. But he talks about his emotional investment in the club and also what he plans to do and how he has put some of those techniques he's learned from the financial world to practice. So I thought it was a really interesting, wide-ranging chat. And he is a fascinating man for having done so well in two quite competitive environments, let's say. In a moment's time, we will uh, we will tee up our interview with Simon. Before we do, I should mention we did have a few technical difficulties this time. Uh, and as a result of that, we did end up doing two interviews with Simon uh, about two weeks apart, one earlier on in September and one slightly later in the month. So uh, we will interrupt this interview um, to highlight the seams where one of those interviews ends and the other one begins. But otherwise, we will see you back at the end uh, for a quick debrief. So without further ado, here is our interview and the mistakes of Simon Hallett. What is your biggest mistake and why was it buying a football club? No. What is your biggest investment mistake and what have you learned from it? Well, luckily, I didn't buy a football club as an investment because if I had, it would have been the worst investment I ever made. Um, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, we're investment managers at Harding Lovner, so we are making condi- uh, decisions under conditions of uncertainty, and therefore it's certain that you will make mistakes a lot, a lot of the time. 
And in fact, we've generated our track record out of getting roughly 53% of our decisions right in a very broad sense. So um, if I can break your <laughs> um, question into two parts, the first is what was your biggest mistake and then what have you learned from it? I have to say that we've learned much more from those every day, every week, every month mistakes that we make the whole time. And it's from those learnings that we've gradually, I think, improved our investment process over the years. So having, having said that, maybe that's something we could come back to later. The biggest mistake we ever made was very early in my, uh, in my role as Chief Investment Officer, which uh, began in uh, the early 2003. And if you remember, that was a time in the aftermath of the TMT crash. Uh, we were in the build-up to the um, invasion by the United States of Afghanistan. Uh, ironic that we're talking about this today. Say timely that we're, we're back timely. on that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, funnily enough, we'd written a letter to all our clients with very unusual content by our standards that um, it was basically a market call. We wrote a piece called Who Dares Wins, in which we said, we think that non-US equity markets are as cheap as they've been in our careers, and this would be a good time for our US clients to be more aggressive about uh, portfolio diversification into non-US equity markets. So um, unusually, and I say it was unusual for us because we're very much focused on company research in, in the investment jargon. We're very much bottom-up investors. We try to avoid market timing and we try to avoid paying uh, uh, more than minimal attention to macroeconomic events. What, 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 have we got to the mistake yet? What, what, what was the... Well, was the, the, mistake, the mistake was that we thought that non-US markets were extraordinarily cheap and we then implemented that view uh, in a way that 18 months later meant that we'd underperformed those markets about which we were optimistic by, if I remember correctly, about 1,200 basis points, which is an extraordinary amount. And where we made the error was in focusing exclusively on our uh, investment philosophy, which demands that we focus on companies that we describe as high quality and we describe as long duration growth. And, you know, so we were actually increasing the quality characteristics of our portfolio, increasing the non-cyclical growth characteristics of our portfolio at a time when there, uh, as it turned out, was the mother of all junk rallies, where the stocks of highly cyclical companies whose future had been uncertain, their existence had been uncertain, all of a sudden, as the economy turned um, in the, uh, the end of the first quarter of 2003 and in, into the second quarter, Stocks of those companies whose future had been uncertain, so by our definition, low quality, massively outperformed. And that really was something that, um, uh, you know, obviously led to very considerable underperformance from a manager who'd been so heavily exposed to high quality. So you were right about the outlook for uh, let's call them international <laughs> for, foreign stocks, but just the one, yeah. the, but, but your 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 style for for quality for growth um was they weren't the ones that captured the most upside there well, and it was the, the but, cyclical but value stocks correct better. correct so you know now i don't mind making an error about a market call but i do mind making an error about the way we implemented our views so we will always have a portfolio that's high quality relative of high quality companies relative to the market but we also care about price and I think that what we didn't do in the first quarter was pay enough attention to price. So, you know, that's really the third leg of our investment philosophy, quality, growth and price. 
And what we missed was that the prices uh, of slightly lower quality companies uh, were much more heavily discounted than those of the extremely high quality companies that we were focusing on. So it was not enough attention to price. Would you have done it differently? You know, so I suppose two follow-ups. You know, what did you learn from it? But would you have done it differently, given that your philosophy, your focus is on quality, is on growth, is very long-term? Would you? You wouldn't have. You wouldn't have changed that necessarily. So what? I, I think at the margin would you, we would have changed. You know, if you again, if you think about quality, growth, and price, you can think of these in some ways as kind of dials. So the portfolio as a whole is always going to be growing faster. Than the market average it's always going to be higher quality than the market average but the extent of the delta between our portfolio and the market does vary and i think we had dialed up the quality because we thought the world's greatest companies were so cheap just as even slightly lower um quality companies were even cheaper the big lessons there was it about the way you'd communicated that with clients sort of making that big market call was it about price and, and not looking enough there what were the sort of i don't know if there was sort of one or two big lessons that you sort of came away from that thinking well, we won't make we won't do that again <laughs> well i think there was one lesson that if we're ever going to make market calls we need to be very careful about what we're actually doing in the portfolios um and we've i think it's fair to say that we occasionally have rather uh vague not very forcefully put let's say not very forcefully put views about markets but we try we definitely try not to let them in influence the portfolio we we don't often go out to clients and say this is what we think about these markets because we recognize that we're usually going to be wrong um, but much more importantly what it did and this was where we were good i think about turning clearly a very clear error into um what really has become in some ways the core of what we do and, a, and enabled us to do very well from from about 2005 through to the present day was that we became very, very good at, at, at being much more objective about how we defined quality and how we defined growth. So this really was a very important step in um, what I was hinting at when I talked about how we learn on a day-to-day -day basis. So being able to say, this is exactly what we mean by a high quality company, for example, you know, we mean uh, relatively low volatility of returns. We mean high return on assets. We mean high cash flow return on investment. We mean it must have a track record. We now have checklists for assessing management quality and so on. It really was, it helped accelerate the beginning of our path down towards um, where we are today, which is where I think we've learned a lot about decision-making and where we've made adjustments to our process to change our decision-making. Uh, in a way that takes a lot of judgment out of the investment process and helps us be much more objective about what we mean by, for example, high a high-quality company. And that's been very, very important to us. And of course, another organization that you're involved in today is Plymouth Argyle, where you are the, uh, the majority owner, or the, do you own all of it? Or uh, I own about 99% now, yeah. Yeah, round so that up, um, and uh, and chairman and things. And I suppose we we joked at the start, and, and you sort of said, you know, it's not an investment because if it was, it would be a terrible investment. Um, but we do see now, I think, in you know, in, in the English Premier League and, and to a degree in Europe, you know, a lot of um, 
venture capital money, you know, uh, private equity money flooding mm. into that, buying clubs or sort of other sort yeah. of relationships with leagues and things. Um, what, what are your views on that? As someone sort of trying to, you know, run a smaller club, run, run it sustainably, sort of, mm-hmm. and, and my, my sense is do the sort of right thing by the, by, by the people, by, by the fans mm-hmm. and the community. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think that, you know, people trying to run these super clubs for profit? And, and I don't know, sort of, what are your views on that? Is this good for the game? Is it, is it good for business? Is it possible to run these things? I, I think money. it's impossible. I think it's impossible. Uh, you, well, you can make money, but it's not, you know, again, I'm an investment guy. This is why I say it's not an investment, because to me, the difference between an investment and a speculation, and I've got no problem with people speculating, but a speculator is somebody who believes they're going to be able to sell the, the, an asset to somebody who's prepared to pay a higher price, whereas an investor is somebody that, that, who believes that they're you know, buying an asset uh, below what they think it's worth. And, you know, how you determine what something's worth in the investment world is that we have a rather crude, but, you know, some guy model to what a security is worth. And that's that it's the discounted present value of its future cash flows, where the discount rate is the sum of risk-free rate and an equity risk premium. And of course, its future cash flows are very hard to estimate. Nobody's and nobody's quite sure what the equity risk premium should be. So, but it's at least a crude model. The trouble is in football, there, there are no cash flows. Um, there are no net cash flows to owners, which is what really matters. Um, the only cash flow you have as an owner is um, when you sell it. So it's essentially a speculation, not an investment. I, I heard you view. refer to it as the ultimate greater fool theory. You're always Correct. on the lookout for somebody who'll pay you more. So it's a challenge. It, and also- it, it, if that's your motive for buying, mm-hmm. you know, do you think that is the motive of, of a lot of the people people who've come in buying yeah. sort of yeah. other no, other than sort of nation states and that whole problem? Uh, well, well, that, that nation states is about soft power clearly, but no, absolutely, a lot of these private equity groups and you know several of them have called me. Um, you know, they talk about undervalued media rights, about you know potential of this and the potential of that. And, I think you, you know, quote in, Barry Hearn as saying potential is the most dangerous thing because it seems like I, that comes I, up a lot. I quote him a lot. I actually quoted it to somebody else this morning. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but, the most dangerous word in football. Is actually the most, in football. Would it extend to investment or is it a potential? There's there's different potential. I realise we're, we're flip-flopping quite a bit from, and I'm yeah. keen to keep it on football because that's where my personal yeah. passion is. Mm-hmm. Well, very um, quickly, Chris, you should, sorry, Chris, you should explain to Simon the, 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 he, not personally him, but but Argyle t- turned you down as, as a they young did. man, not once but twice. I did as a 13-year-old. Well, I'm in 35 oh, now, so a 22-year axe to grind. I grew up in mid-Devon. I had two trials with Argyle. Oh, you three one to Swindon. And then I played a behind-closed-doors friendly and scored an own goal. So, yeah, it went really well. I had a year at Exeter because they would sort of take anybody. But it was, and, it was and, good. And did you go on to have a successful football career? No, no, I didn't. So, so kudos to our academy for getting you right. Sorry. <laughs> they cut their losses early. It was they just a good cell early. discipline. Exactly. A very good cell discipline. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. One thing, I mean, segueing back slightly, I heard you give the example of Exeter Chiefs from rugby in the UK as being a prime example yes. of a company that is, or club, I should say, that have been run mm-hmm. effectively by a community led owner. Are there any other sporting examples you can draw on of where people are doing this the right way, so to speak? Um, well, it, I, think there are, I think there are examples in different areas that we're trying to focus on. So, you know, when it comes to kind of community involvement um, and, the, you know, the motives of the owner, we, we played a team last night, Cambridge United, where the owner, like, like me as an uh, American resident, um, 
who's bought into his boyhood club. And if you read what um, he's got to say about Cambridge and its role in the community and his plans for Cambridge, they're almost identical to ours. So there are other clubs, you know, with that community focus. You know, I look at clubs like, you know, Accrington Stanley in our own league, where clearly, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do the right thing by the community. The, the lesson from the Chiefs is really about how you operate the club as a business and how you generate the revenues that you need to invest or spend on the first team and the infrastructure that's required to be a sustainable championship club, which is our goal. And what the Chiefs have done from a very early uh, from a very early stage is take their crowds, which are roughly the same as us. Uh, I think their ground has a capacity of about 12,000 and they fill it. And we, we had 11,000 on Saturday, so we're not far off. Um, but they've added to that an investment in uh, conference and banqueting facility, which is amongst the best in the Southwest. So they've been able to increase their asset base and then make use of their assets, uh, you know, seven days a week. The big problem from a business point of view with football is that your biggest asset is your stadium and it's used for a couple of hours once a fortnight. Could we ask you one thing very quickly, which is we always yeah. ask people their, their worst decisions and their, their you know, biggest mistakes. But we should also, we try to counter it with any best decisions that you've made, uh, you know, a, a, a end on a brag. Oh. Oh, well, the, no, not so much a brag, but to go back to your very first question, if if buying Argar was the worst investment decision I've ever made, it was one of the great, great decisions I've ever made. Um, I'm having so much fun. I'm very proud of what we've achieved at Argar since I've been involved and particularly since I became chairman. I think, you know, Argar continues to get better. We, we're, um, well, we're, we're getting better on so many dim dimensions and um, you know, my wife and I have just had so much fun. I mean, it's been very, very satisfying. It's been the second most satisfying thing after, or third most satisfying thing after, you know, family, Harding Lovner that I've done. Third or fourth. There's yeah. kind of about fourth, four fifth. things, yeah. about four things that I'm proud of in my life. And um, I'll go right up there. Do you offer 35-year-old journalists with bad knees trials anymore? Is there still very a much so. Very much so. Sorry to interrupt here, but this is the bit where we have the technical difficulties. Hopefully it will be seamlessly linked together, but this is where the conversation picks up a couple weeks later, but still touching on the same topics with Simon. With where you are now, would you have done anything differently in the way that you set up and also playing complete sort of theoretical future? If you were setting up now, is there something you wish you had known before? Um, yeah, I think I, I, almost everything that we've done we've kind of learned as we've gone. We were only 35 when we started. And um, the firm was very much built around the personalities and tastes of the founding generation. So, you know, Dan Harding, who, who left um, nearly, nearly 20 years ago now, um, for the first 10 or 11 years, you know, David Lovner, myself, and then the colleagues that joined early on. So, you know, Rusty and, Rusty Johnson, Alec Walsh, and even our CIO today, Farrell Roll, all joined kind of roughly in the mid 1990s. And, the, you know, they were our friends. They were very similar to us. And, you know, one of the things I think that we learned pretty early on was the need to have people beyond people who were similar to us. And it, it is an issue at Harding Lovner that, you know, people rarely leave. We, we've had a couple of retirements and one, at a couple of you know of deaths 
um, you know, the worst way of leaving possible. But essentially, essentially, the core of the firm has been with us 25, 30 years, or nearly 30 years. Um, and so we haven't had that cognitive diversity that we today recognize as being critical. That really started from the um, late 90s. When we looked around, we realized that we'd hired our friends. People's friends tend to be themselves. And we realized that we were all, you know, roughly 40, you know, white, um, white men with families. And, um, you know, we, we did then begin much more aggressively to uh, try to um, grow through having people join us who, you know, had different, different backgrounds, either different ethnicities, different national upbringings, just something that made them, them different. So our original culture was, you know, we, we, we were very honest people. We believe strongly in the importance of integrity. We absolutely tried to do everything with a view to putting our clients' interests first. Um, but beyond that, um, I don't think we would be, have been able to describe our culture. And today, I think we can describe it in terms of individual accountability, in terms of uh, transparency, as well as, you know, pretty deep-rooted integrity. On the topic, well, sort of on both those points, on both decision making and on you know culture, it's just how do you how how do incentives shape those, and how do you? I mean, I'm not sort of, you know, I'm not asking for your exact pay scales and <laughs> what no. everyone gets paid, but I'm interested to know because you know it's such a big deal in and in asset management. You know, you hear firms yeah. who preach such a big game about being long term investors, but then you find out that you know actually the PMs are incentivized. On quite short-term bases and obviously mm -hmm. that you know that's going to impact their 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 behavior and the way they invest the fund um and so i'm interested to know yeah you know how, how do you how 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 do you think about that how do you i mean as yeah. much as you can say how do you structure incentives yeah, no, to, uh, to encourage better decision making and and a, and a better culture i suppose well the, the first thing is that you know we we actually incentivize people or compensate people i wouldn't say incentivize them but compensate people based partly on short-term performance um, but we, we monitor how they behave. And if we see them behaving in ways that we think are irrational, then, you know, they, they don't progress with us. <laughs> um, so we actually have a three-tier um, compensation system. One is, that, you know, every year we stop the clock. And I'm talking here about analysts um, and portfolio managers. We look at how they performed and they get a bonus above or below target based upon their short-term performance. Um, the second way is that we have what's called an equity-linked incentive program, whereby we, uh, on a discretionary basis, um, allocate money to uh, a pool, um, which is related, the size of the pool being related to the firm's profitability. Um, and that pool can be used for the third type of compensation or incentives, which is partnership. And um, basically, people can turn their share of the pool into partnership units and become uh, equity owners. The, the way we think about it at the short term, which is the most controversial for the reasons that you mentioned, Alex, is that we want we think people are going to be with us for a long time. We want them to recognize that, that you know, it, it's all very well saying, saying, oh, I get compensated based upon my one year performance, but you can't control your one year performance. So if we see people trying to do trades because they think, it's going to, you know, increase the probability of their getting a big bonus at the end of the year. Then, you know, they're not going to be the kind of people whose behaviour is going to gel with the culture at Harding Lavner. And you can, so, and you can monitor that. You can obviously, you can see, you know, if someone starts trading 
I don't know, more frequently yeah, than they have course. done things. Yeah. Would you, and you literally sort of pull them to one side and be like, hey. Absolutely. Yeah. And say, this isn't going to work for, you know, well, it won't work. You know, we know that short term trading destroys value, um, you know, unless you're very, very carefully structured in a way, in ways that we are not. You know, we are structured to be successful long term investors. So I actually like the idea that people, um, people's incentives can be dangerous. You know, it can cause them to behave in ways that we would think were um, inappropriate, inappropriate for, you know, good long term investment returns. I don't mean unethical yeah. in any way. The, the one thing that we do fight back against is that it's very, very common these days to hear uh, consultants and intermediaries say that, you know, portfolio managers have to have skin in the game, that they have to be you know, thoroughly invested with their own assets alongside those of the clients so we, we actually reject that um that's interesting because that, that is a very that is, that is sort of pop the you know sort of re, i would say it's a received wisdom right and there's a lot, it a lot is, of it is it is the received wisdom, what's yeah. your um well what we, is, what, we, yeah we, I'm think, to hear we why. think two two things um if you're a portfolio manager at harding lubner or a senior analyst it's almost certain that you are an equity owner in the business. And if you're an equity owner in the business, you have effectively leveraged uh, exposure to global beta, plus, you know, massive exposure to Harding Lovner's ability to generate alpha. So that ownership of the business really gives you a very, very leveraged exposure to what we're doing for our clients. And that's where the alignment is. So to say to a portfolio manager, that in addition with his personal assets, he has to invest in you know, the funds he managed, I think it would be irrational. He'd be completely undiversified and he'd be personally in an extremely risky position. And we know that when people um, are, you know, are overexposed, they tend to um, become risk averse. And I think that it would actually inhibit the ability of a portfolio manager to manage the portfolio properly if he was overexposed to his own decisions. So it's very much about the long term tie in to client incentives rather than, you know, having what they call skin in the game. I suppose to, to try to push back, certainly on the, the first point, I suppose maybe there are some managers who are at firms where they either can't have equity in that firm or the firm's so big, I don't know, like a sort of JP Morgan or something. So having equity in, in, yeah. in that isn't quite the, you know, it's not as closely um, tied to the asset management's point. So I suppose it, one could argue it's a bit firm to firm and your yeah, structure I, allows yeah, absolutely. that. absolutely. Exactly right. Our structure does allow that. You know, there's a reason why we're a partnership, you know, and it, I think historically there's a reason why partnerships have been so so successful that, you, you know, you do have skin in the game, but it's long-term skin in the game. Um, but, you know, in the short term, um, you know, I think, well, just imagine, do a thought experiment, you know, imagine that you are managing, you know, a billion dollar mutual fund and you had 100% of your net worth invested in that fund. You know, the market tanks, are you prepared to buy when your own money, 100% of your net worth is in the fund, uh, which you're managing on behalf of individuals who presumably have diversified asset basis. You know, you, portfolio management is about managing risk. Uh, obviously, and you know that involves managing your own behaviour, and managing your own behaviour means you know you need to be careful about the risks that you're exposing yourself to as well. 
with the biases, I mean, it's very hard for you to you spot them in yourself. Do you spot them? Do you do anything within your teams as well to spot or even coach them out of people internally? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're we're structured um, very much to help us overcome confirmation bias in particular. So, I mean, I guess the biggest, most obvious cultural thing is that we have a very, very strong culture of disagreement. Um, you know, it's, it's ever so easy to put an idea forward and hear people say, yeah, I agree with it. And, you know, they think you're great. That's really, really, really easy and very, makes people very comfortable. Um, but we, we, we basically encourage people and incentivize people to disagree. Um, so sometimes it makes for a rather uncomfortable uh, environment. People quite literally, you know, the, the neurons go off in your amygdala at the back of your brain, which is where your fear response is, your flight response, if people disagree with you. So it can make for a kind of slightly uncomfortable place to be. And part of my role when I was chief investment officer was to make sure that, you know, disagreement was civilized, that people understood why, you know, investment people can be passionate and occasionally fires would break out <laughs> no 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 actual fist fights though right you, you ne never a, never a fist fight <laughs> there's, a, there's a pause there for yeah. just a little <laughs> too long <laughs> i think uh, never a fist fight. i could yeah no there's an incident i can remember but i don't think it involved people working at the firm at the time well that was our interview with simon hallett now chris i think there's quite a lot in there um one thing that really leapt out to me was this this point that he made about not buying into this idea that managers need skin in the game, that they don't need to be invested in their own fund. And in fact, it can lead to bad decisions because, you know, as he said, um, you know, you could become risk averse if all, if all your money's in there and actually, you know, clients are more diversified than the managers and things, uh, which I just thought was really interesting because I know you and I spend a lot of time speaking to portfolio managers, a lot of time speaking to people who run asset management firms. And they, for the most part, they, they say the opposite, right? Well, yeah, that seems to be the, the received wisdom that to align shareholder interests, the manager has to be doing the same thing. But Simon was really adamant on that. I thought that was really interesting because he was clear of why he didn't think it worked. He then also talked about, I mean, we, that incentive chat, as always, spilled over into football and how you can do that in a sport that is massively results driven. So I thought he covered that in a really interesting way that I hadn't heard before. I mean, on football, I mean, I did bring every question back to it, but he did mercilessly tear me apart when I asked why I was let go at a young age. I'm still sore about that, if I'm honest. Yeah, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you speak to these people, uh, you know, obviously they're all relatively or very successful on the grand scheme of things, and, and, but they're all quite nice. And you think, oh, they're nice people, but actually, actually they're ruthless. You have, and you probably have to, have to be to run, I don't know, north of billions of dollars or to own a football club. Uh, actually, maybe you don't have to be ruthless to own a football club. You have to be ruthless to be successful at a football club. Yeah, yeah, you could nicely run a football club and keep your humanity or you could end up being, I won't start naming names, else we'll end up getting sued for a stupid thing I said at the back end of a podcast. Yeah, if we're going to get sued, it's got to be for a big news story, right? It's not going to be for the, the part of the podcast that, I don't know, maybe no one's listening to. If you are listening to it, thank you. Um, this has been episode two of Mistakes Were Made and it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Chris Slowly. Thank mm -hmm. you.